Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. Are you exercising and eating right to ensure that you do all you can to live the longest life possible? You may be surprised to learn that diet and exercise matter less and your relationships, personality, and emotions matter more in terms of influencing how long you live. And joining us to explain more about that is science journalist Marta Zaraska, whose newest book is called Growing Young, How Friendship, Optimism, and kindness can help you live to 100. Marta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is a fascinating topic. Why did you become interested in it? It came quite naturally from my research as a science journalist. I've been writing about health and uh, psychology and nutrition for, for many, many years. And um, I was also quite quite interested in health and nutrition myself personally. So I was always following very healthy diets and staying on top of all the trends and miracle foods I should be eating and so on and exercising mm -hmm. regularly and um, with all the necessary gadgets. And, uh, and um, I started coming across more and more research in my professional life that put a challenge onto the my assumptions about what makes healthy living. And um, so I started reading more and more and uh, interviewing scientists. Uh, and I, what I discovered basically completely shattered my previous assumptions because I discovered that our social lives, our mental health, our uh, kindness, uh, how socially connected we are, matters at least as much to our health and longevity as our diet and exercise if not more. And I was obviously approaching healthy living myself all wrong. So I had to rethink my life as well. Uh, so when I wrote this book, I wrote it also in a way for myself to find out how I can keep my family healthy and living long uh, instead of just following the trends and the fat diets. And in order to do this, you talked with people from a lot of different cultures, and the people that come to mind are the Japanese. What did you learn from them in terms of their emphasis on social relationships versus health and diet? So one very interesting thing was when I was talking to scientists in Japan, to, um, to aging researchers, uh, one of the very first things that always came up in a conversation was the role of social social integration and meaning in life, something the Japanese called ikigai, I'm probably pronouncing it all wrong here, uh, in our longevity and health. Whereas when I was talking to scientists in the West, in US or UK, uh, they usually talked about biological processes, uh, about how our cells age, about telomeres, uh, about diet and exercise. Whereas exactly in Japan, this 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 emotional social part was really, really pronounced. Even, you know, the health ministry of Japan considers purpose 
in life, finding purpose in life as one of the most important health strategies. So we really recognize uh, how important those things are to our longevity and health. How important is a committed romantic relationship to one's longevity? Oh, extremely, extremely important. Uh, Research shows that marriage can lower your mortality risk by about 49%. And this is enormous. To put it into perspective, uh, the faint Mediterranean diet can lower your mortality risk by about 21%. So we have 49% for marriage, 21% for the diet, which, you know, this is an enormous difference. So one of actually the, of the best things you can do for your health and longevity is to find love, basically. And uh, of course, happier marriage, the happier marriage, the better. Uh, but actually, quite surprisingly, at least for me, uh, there is quite some, quite a lot of research showing that for men, uh, any marriage is better than no marriage for their health and longevity, even not a very good one. So what happens then when the partner dies? Does that immediately lead to a quick decline with the other partner? Unfortunately, yes. There is even something called the widower syndrome. Uh, when within the first week of the spouse's death, the second spouse is much more likely to die as well. And, uh, and this is something that's, uh, that really does happen. It's physiological. People die of heart attacks and generally their bodies fail. Uh, so, so this is a very, very real phenomenon. And yet you do see stories of people, I'm thinking women in particular, who are over the age of 100, who may have been widowed 30 or 40 years, and they're still going on. How is it that they're able to continue that long life, even though they've lost a partner long ago? Obviously, you know, it, it's not everything, but once you survive this first week, you can still overcome it and you can compensate for it in lots of other ways with friendships and optimism and kindness, volunteering and involvement in your community. Uh, the woman has the longest ever lived human. It was a woman. Uh, her name was Jeanne Calmont. She was French and she lived to be 122. And she has been widowed for decades. Uh, but she was also a very optimistic person. She was always outgoing and cheerful and, uh, and in, in engaged with others. And, uh, and of course, she also had the genes for it. That's, that's certainly the part mm -hmm. you can have lived to 122 without any genes for it. But, uh, but definitely, uh, it's not only marriage. It's also other parts, social integration and your personality. Did you find that it was more important for people to have a lot of friends who occasionally check in on them or to have a smaller group of friends who are really with them 24-7 or, you know, certainly a few times a week? I mean, definitely both quality and quantity matter. So uh, the re research shows that you have to have the quantity as well. I mean, in terms of time, not in, in terms of friends. So mm -hmm. uh, as you can only, it's enough to have one friend if you feel that you have someone to rely on. So this feeling here is extremely important, uh, that you know that there is someone out there on, you, on whom you can count, who will come to be there for you if you fall sick, for example. Uh, and, uh, but also it matters how often you meet with that person of you, if, you're, if you have more friends with them. Uh, and in general, the absolute minimum here is once per week. So uh, it's not enough to have 
a friend, but not to see them enough. You, you have to actually see each other and be there for each other. We are, we are still very physical creatures. We are social apes. Uh, and so we need that physical contact, even, you know, things like hugs and holding hands, looking each, into each other's eyes. Our bodies even physiologically synchronize with others when we are phys- physically next to each other. Which brings up the pandemic, and you're talking about hugs and holding hands and looking into each other's eyes and being close to one another physically. So what impact did you see the changes brought about by the pandemic having perhaps long-term on longevity? Unfortunately, that's true. That's This kind of social isolation is not good for our bodies. And it's absolutely necessary to prevent spread of the of the coronavirus. But on the other hand, it also has negative impact even on our immune system because studies show that hugging, for example, uh, other people, your friends, your family, boosts your immune system, so makes you more resistant to viruses, ironically. Uh, and the same with social isolation. When people people who are socially isolated, uh, they die about even up to three times uh, more often prematurely than people who are well integrated with their community and meeting other people often. So so they are more prone to diabetes, to, to heart disease. There are lots of side effects of being socially isolated, of loneliness, of not being physically with others. But unfortunately, you know, this is something we have to solve uh, because obviously we cannot start telling people, okay, stop, stop socially distancing because it can cause you diabetes down the road, but because it can cause you coronavirus now. So we have to, mm-hmm. we have to find some other ways, you know, maybe hug more the people with whom you live already, you know, remember to do that, to look them into their eyes, which boosts your oxytocin, uh, and call as much as you can. Mm-hmm. I think that the title of the book, when I first heard about it, seemed so much like a book we needed to talk to you about, in particular because we were thinking about some of our older friends or people that we see out when we're at restaurants, people we see all the time at certain restaurants, who are older people who have gotten into the habit of going out to the same restaurants at the same time every day. And being in quarantine has meant that they've gotten out of this habit and maybe they haven't necessarily been eating any poor. Maybe in fact, they've been eating better, but their health has declined. So it's really going to be interesting to see the short-term impact as well as the long-term impact here. Yeah, I'm afraid, you know, that there will be some data later on. Obviously, right now we cannot say there is just anecdotal uh, evidence. And there were some very sad articles here in France, you know, with headlines saying that people in nursing homes in France, they don't die of coronavirus, they die of loneliness. Uh, it was a big article here. And uh, and they probably got it right, because as I've said, mentioned before, there is plenty of research showing that loneliness does kill. And for that reason, for example, in the United Kingdoms, uh, they now have a minister for loneliness uh, to deal with this epidemic. And I'm wondering too about when when we talk about things like shaking hands, that going forward, even once uh, we've dealt with the coronavirus, hopefully, you know, very soon, but going forward, if we're not doing those things like shaking hands just to all of us, do you think that 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 will somehow have a subtle impact on on our ability to connect and and therefore be a you know a subtle thing that affects our longevity. I mean, I don't know if shaking hands with every 
person you meet will be that important, but definitely if we hug less our friends or neighbors, uh, that certainly won't be good. Even for the simple fact that when you hug your friends or family, you actually exchange microbes with them. And the more people you hug from more diverse backgrounds, the more diverse your, your gut microbes become. And this is generally good for your health. So, so there are so many tiny little things, biological things that are going on here that we don't even sometimes realize. And of course, there is the oxytocin boost you get from skin to skin contact. And if we give up on that uh, long term, that certainly won't be good. Mm -hmm. For people who are disabled or older and have trouble getting out of the house, regardless of coronavirus, you think that it's a good thing that they have Facebook and opportunities to interact with people um, on social media in a way that they maybe wouldn't have. At least that's what I would think, that they can co connect with people that they don't see all the time. They can you know, like their posts and show kindness and maybe FaceTime or Skype with people they haven't seen in a while. Does this have the same impact as communicating with people in person or is it going to be different? I mean, it's always worse than in person, but science does show that for people who are exactly disabled or cannot live, leave their houses, going on Facebook and or on Zoom, Skype is actually good for them. Uh, but if you're perfectly able to go and meet people in person and you are replacing that with Facebook relationships, then you are going to be worse off. So it all depends on your situation. If, if you, ha you have either Facebook or nothing, then Facebook is definitely better. If you have real relationships or Facebook, then real relationships are certainly better and Facebook makes your life worse. Uh, so, it, so it really depends on the situation. Now, what about having an animal in your life? What impact does that have? Is it the I mean, same as having other, <laughs> other people if, if you're caring for an animal? I mean, it's not the same, that's certain. Uh, but also, depending on the animal, if you have, I don't know, a hedgehog, that's definitely not the same as a dog. <laughs> and, uh, but a dog does definitely promote our, uh, our health uh, also for the social way because uh, studies show that looking deeply into your dog's eyes boosts oxytocin, which is the social hormone that on one hand makes us feel good. It's called laugh hormone very often. And on the other hand, has lots of very strictly physiological consequences. For example, uh, has, um, has anti-inflammatory properties. It, uh, it, it stimulates bone growth, so can prevent osteoporosis. So uh, so in a way, you could, that's a very big shortcut here, but you could say that looking into your dog's eyes could theoretically prevent osteoporosis as well. So, uh, so definitely, um, definitely having a dog helps. So for example, for those elderly people or disabled people, ha having a dog uh, could be a very good thing. There are a lot of opportunities right now for people to get into volunteering who maybe didn't have the time for it before and now have the time for it since their hours are more flexible working at home. And some older people who maybe have retired and didn't have time to give back before, but now they do. What kind of an impact do you think that volunteering for them, even starting later on in their life, will have on their longevity? So volunteering has huge impact on, on our longevity. So uh, in general, it reduces mortality about as much as eating six or more servings of fruit, fruits and vegetables a day. So it's oh, a huge God. impact. So, you know, yeah, yeah, you could basically stop eating your, I mean, I'm not saying do that, but you could theoretically <laughs> stop eating all your fruits and vegetables and just 
pick up volunteering, it would come out on zero. Of course, it's best to eat your fruits and vegetables and volunteer. Yeah. Uh, but also studies show that uh, volunteer reduces the risk of uh, infl- high, having high inflammation levels. It's, uh, it lowers your risk of having high blood glucose. Uh, volunteers even spend less time in hospitals uh, as patients, of course. Uh, so, so it really boosts our health. And uh, also for elderly people, actually, so that it's, it's a really great way to, uh, to improve their health. What about something like parenthood? How much of an impact does that have? You, you said the, a committed romantic relationship is probably the most important thing you can do. But what about parenthood? So things get very complicated when you mention parenthood. And the reason for that is that uh, generally caregiving and taking care of others is, is good for us. But because parenthood also involves uh, things like giving birth, which, for example, for women has a lot of uh, side effects, physiological, that it's very hard to really calculate. And scientists are still trying to figure out whether having children prolongs our lives or not necessarily. There is a big debate going on because exactly some things are make it better, like exactly this kind of having someone, loving someone, caring for someone. But on the other hand, there's the stress and the short, you know, lack of sleep. And uh, so it's much more complicated and hard to tell, really. What about the impacts of having strained relationships? So maybe you have that husband or a kid, but you don't get along well with them and you're thinking about that all the time. That must be wearing. So in general, of course, when research says about good, good, uh, good science, sorry, in general, when, when research says that marriage is good for you, they mean happy marriage. But uh, actually for men, for whatever reason, even not a very good marriage is better than no, no, no marriage at all. Uh, for women, it has to be happy marriage. Otherwise, it doesn't it doesn't improve their health or longevity. Um, it's also a little bit cultural, depends on the country where they study. But sometimes even a poor quality relationship can have some potentially positive effects on health. The scientists presume that it may have something to do with the fact that for men, uh, relationships bring them more into a social circle because women tend to be more involved in community, more involved with friends and neighbors. So the husband benefits from the social circle aspect as well. So there may be something going on there, even if the marriage is poor. But in general, of course, the better the marriage, the better for your health. And what role does optimism play in your longevity? Oh, huge one. So optimism can add you as much as anywhere from four to 10 years of life. So that's absolutely enormous. You say that the book was inspired by your own journey, figuring out that you could go from following all these health fads into trying to learn about other things like friendship and optimism to extend your life. And I'm wondering what kind of changes you have made personally since starting the research on this book. So first of all, I tremendously simplified my diet and my family's diets. I have a small daughter at home, so I'm also cooking for her and trying to make sure she stays healthy. Uh, And I used to really maybe not obsessed, but really follow up the trends and what kind of vegetables are uh, the vegetable of the month, what I should be eating. When I, I lived, uh, we lived at uh, some point in Philadelphia, very close to a whole food store. And I loved going there and, and, uh, and spending lots of time looking at all the shelves uh, and also, you know, uh, spending lots of money and all the kind of uh, <laughs> organic, ancient uh, 
fair trade, blah, blah, everything the best. And, uh, and also always looking for new recipes to integrate this new vegetable I have just found into my daughter's diet and so on and so on. Uh, and I realized that this is absolutely not necessary and wasting my time because, you know, it takes time to find those recipes, to learn them, to find those foods, to read about them and to go to the store and, and so on and so on. And, and whereas now I, we actually have 10 dishes that I cook on rotation, they are all very healthy, but quite simple, tasty. We like them. Uh, if we want something fancy, we go out to a restaurant and, uh, and that's it. So, and I don't, I don't drive to any special stores anymore to far away to get some one food I really want to buy some special vegetable or whatever so that's one thing and the second thing is that uh, even though me and my husband we still exercise very regularly uh, for example we both decided at some point we were planning to do I was planning to do a half marathon and he was planning to do a marathon this year and then at some point we decided not to do it because we saw that it would take too much time from uh, from spending time together basically and having evenings to talk uh, with a glass of wine and we know that it's much more important to have this time together uh, than to run a marathon you know you can exercise without running marathons and be perfectly healthy so um, mm -hmm. So these are kind of the small decisions that's uh, definitely changed. Is there some kind of natural upper limit to the human lifespan? This is something that scientists still are very much disagreeing on. So if you if you ask a group of longevity aging scientists, um, then there will there most likely a fight will, will ensue because they cannot agree on that. So some say there is the, the limit is 115. Others say there is no limit. We basically still don't know. Is there any research behind the idea that a gratitude journal might help you live to be 100? Because I've been keeping one of those for years, so I'm <laughs> very hopeful. <laughs> I mean, it definitely won't hurt. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, the research be behind gratefulness is not very strong. Because I, I'm quite disappointed myself because I like the whole idea of gratefulness and, and gratitude journals and so on. And as I'm saying, it certainly won't hurt to have one. It can make you only feel better, but uh, it's not as straightforward. Their um, quality of relationships, how often you meet your friends is far more important than a gratitude journal. In general, how are these people who live to be over the age of 100 different from the rest of us? It's a very difficult question and scientists are still trying to find out. Uh, one thing that people usually find surprising and uh, also what comes out in conversations uh, I'm having about the book, because what I often hear is people saying, I don't want to live to 100. And the reason for that is they say they are worried about being infirm and basically ridden by disease for you know 20 years and not really enjoying that long life but the thing is that uh surprisingly people who live very long tend to also be sick for very short periods of time so for example someone who will live to be uh 80 something, so basically the average lifespan of a Westerner, uh, will spend about 18% of their time on earth ridden by disease. Whereas for super centenarians, so those people who live to be 110 and more, that's only 5%. And one in 10 of those super centenarians actually uh, escapes disease until the very last three months of their life. So imagine you live to be 110 and you are only sick really for three months. 
that's unbelievable. So, you know, this kind of uh, image of a hundred year old, old as someone frail and sick is actually not real. Genes have to play a pretty big part in all of this, don't they? A little bit, yes, but we kind of tend to overestimate how much. And uh, certainly there are some genes that give certain people a little bit of a boost. Uh, but just like with everything, you know, the same with, uh, with healthy eating and so on, uh, genes can only give you a little bit. The rest is up to us. What advice would you have in general for someone who is hearing this conversation and wants to know what your take-home messages are? So my take-home message would be to really concentrate on your relationships, on your place in your community, and take time to sit down and just think about it. You know, this is the most important first step to just realize that our social connections, the way we live our life, uh, the, how we think about life, whether we have purpose in life, really matters not just to our mental health, but to our physical health. And once we realize it, uh, we can really start changing and living our lives differently. After all of this research, what would you say is the biggest takeaway? I mean, the, the first and most important thing in all of this is the committed romantic relationship. And I usually say marriage doesn't have to be marriage as long as you are committed. This committed part is really important. So you both mm -hmm. are certain you, want, you are in it uh, for good and for bad and until death do us part. And once you have it and it's a good quality relationship, you really have done an enormous part towards having a healthy and long life. Marta, our show is called Nobody Told Me, and we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So after all of this research that you've done, what is it that nobody told you about that you were really surprised about and you kind of wish someone had told you about before? So that nobody told me that cleaning, keeping your room clean and your desk neat and tidy matters for your health. And science shows that this is basically conscientiousness, that conscientiousness has a tremendous impact on our health and longevity. So keeping, paying your bills on time, keeping your desk clean, um, keeping your house all tidy is actually important for your health. So this is something I, I wished I knew earlier also to teach my daughter because I, I thought that only the fact that she eats her vegetable soups matters for her health, whereas it appears that me teaching her to keep her room tidy actually is, extreme, is tremendously important to her health as well. Explain more about that. That's fascinating. Basically, our personality in general matters for how healthy and how long-lived we are. And another thing that is often a misconception is that personality is something we are born with. And to a small degree, that's true, but personality also changes and we can change our personality intentionally. Uh, it's a little bit like with exercise. If you practice conscientiousness, for example, which is the most important uh, personality trait for health and longevity, uh, then you become more conscientious. So basically, it's fake it until you make it. If you tidy your desk every day, if you, if you try to pay your bills, you try to be on time for meetings, it becomes a habit and you actually become more conscientious. And this has impacts on your health. And not only because conscientious people take to 
tend to uh, eat their vegetables and exercise and uh, and hydrate and whatnot but actually there are biological pathways behind that as well which have to do with all the stress hormones and and uh, our uh, immune systems and so on and so on so it's actually super important to your health how conscientious you are see this is so fascinating when we first heard about your book we were like this is all stuff we don't know. You hear so many different <laughs> health books that are like, this is the key to living to a hundred and a long life. And then your book is so different, but it makes so much sense that there are a lot of other factors that go into that. So, I mean, we just really thank you for writing this book and for opening up this conversation. So how can people learn more about it and connect with you on the internet? Uh, so we can definitely go to my website, which is www.growingyoungthebook.com, and they can find find out more about the book. I also points I also post some interesting tidbits there and information uh, on how we can live longer and what you can do to stay healthy uh, through your social life and mental health. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Our thanks to Marta Zaraska again. Her new book is called Growing Young. How Friendship, Optimism, and Kindness Can Help You Live to 100. And again, the website for the book is growingyoungthebook.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 